Hi, everyone, and welcome to Bernstein Insights, where we cover trends in the economy and markets and asset allocation for long-term investors. I'm Matt Palazzolo, Senior Portfolio Manager. Over the last year, we've covered a number of topics related to um, the markets and investing, but I think none of them will be as important as the one we're about to cover for fiduciaries that are involved with not-for-profit organizations. And so I've asked a colleague of mine, Travis Allen, also a senior portfolio manager who does a lot of work with these organizations to join me today to cover this range of topics and, most importantly, to give us and our our listeners some advice. So, Travis, let's set the stage, before we get to that aspect of it, to discuss a little bit about the environment that we're in, the investing environment. There are challenges for all investors, whether not-for-profit organizations or individuals. Those challenges are around lower return expectations, higher volatility. So for a fiduciary that is involved with a charity or other not-for-profit organization, and they're responsible for investing on behalf of that organization, how do they deal with that investment landscape? Well, you have to think about uh, where we are in the context of where we've been. And uh, over the last you know nine or 10 years, investors have really benefited from robust returns in the equity markets. If you go back to 2009, Global stocks have compounded at something like 12% per year. Now, that was aided by the fact that we had you know, central bank activity, uh, low interest rates. So bond returns were actually pretty good over that period as well. And I think the reason why this is a good time for fiduciaries to revisit their investment strategy is that at some point we'll get to an inflection point where interest rates won't continue to be as low as they have been, and equity returns won't continue to be as good as they have been. Uh, And I think that puts fiduciaries in a tough spot in terms of getting ahead of this and making some important decisions. You're focusing on on stocks, obviously, because that is the growth aspect of most not-for-profits asset allocation, but you're focusing also on interest rates because of the bond component. That, That provides the stability, and as interest rates go up, what? How should they expect bond returns to act in that environment? Well, as interest rates go up, especially from a very low interest rate environment, you should expect very modest returns for bonds. Uh, and so for organizations that have been able to get by by having a significant portion of their asset allocation allocated to bonds, uh, this is an important time for them to revisit what do they do? Do they go to stocks? Do they go to something else? Uh, and so we've been working with a lot of organizations in order to rewrite or revisit their investment policy. I think that's key, and we'll flesh that out with the rest of our conversation. But um, you know, just to come to the first conclusion of this podcast, the, the asset allocation that maybe was good over the last five or ten years is certainly not going to be the right one for the next five or ten or twenty years. Exactly, Travis. Let's let's touch on uh, inflation because that isn't related to to bonds and to interest rates. That's another challenge as well. Inflation has been fairly benign over the last ten years but likely not going to be so over the next decade. How should a fiduciary think about inflation and what it can do to their asset allocation and their returns? Right. Inflation hasn't just been benign over the last 10 years. Inflation has been benign for a a long time now. And in our view, inflation is likely to be higher going forward. And so if you think about it, a traditional portfolio that's allocated, say, 60% to stocks and 40% to bonds – We estimate that after inflation, looking forward over the next 30 years, they're only going to have 3.5% to spend net of inflation, 
many organizations have spending policies that say four or even five percent. And of course, private foundations have to spend five percent. And so this will set up a very different and challenging inflation environment for these organizations. So what's a fiduciary to do? Should they just eliminate that bond risk in their portfolio and just go all the stocks? Well, that's one option. I think it's a difficult option for most organizations to swallow. It will, in our view, get them up close to about 5% uh, at net of inflation in terms of the amount they can spend from the portfolio. The problem is, is that it dramatically increases the probability that they're going to suffer through a 20% or greater drawdown in the portfolio, which is generally where uh, investors and fiduciaries start to really feel pain. And so for most organizations, it's not a reasonable trade-off to go all the way to stocks uh, and live with the short-term volatility that will result. It's a, a real conundrum. And I want to emphasize this point that based on our expectations, returns on a 100% stock portfolio net of inflation is pretty close to what many organizations are having to pay out anyway. And that comes with all of the volatility that, that comes with a 100% stock portfolio. Travis, let's move on. And, and um, I guess l- let's start to, to lay out the advice for fiduciaries that are involved with these organizations. How should they set up a policy to meet the, these challenging goals that they have? Well, uh, fiduciaries, uh, again, are in a tough position today because it's very hard to find consensus on these committees. I've sat on a few uh, myself. But when you get down to it, there are really only three levers that they have. Uh, They can either increase the asset allocation to stocks. They can reduce the amount that they're spending in order to reduce the burden on the portfolio. Or they can raise additional revenue from other sources through development efforts and fundraising uh, or adding money to a private foundation as another example. Those are really the only three levers that they have in order to deal with this challenge of perpetuity. So let's take those one by one. We'll start um, with the final one that you gave, which is to raise additional revenue if possible. Let's talk about that. Well, that's probably the hardest one, right? I think (laughs) if every organization had uh, some magic wand that would allow them to raise twice as much as they're raising today, they would do it. For some, that lever doesn't even exist. (laughs) That's right. And so just talk to the development staff (laughs) about how hard this is. Uh, And so it's just not feasible that organizations will be able to, in the short term, dramatically change the amount of money that they're able to raise. If they can, that's wonderful. But most organizations aren't uh, in that position. And so it's not uh, usually the first place that someone will go in order to deal with this investment challenge. Can we assume the same is true for reducing spending, which was the second uh, bit of, of a lever that could be pulled? Yes, but reducing spending actually comes with its own challenges because remember that you know one of the reasons why organizations have set up uh, these funds is to generally meet some sort of social mission or uh, some other sort of operational or programmatic spending that they need to do. Oftentimes, when the markets are in some sort of downturn, the needs go up. Just think about the financial crisis. Right, Markets went down at the same time that unemployment was going up dramatically. And so many of these organizations had their portfolios shrink at the time just when the people who rely on them or the programs that rely on them really needed the funds. And so reducing spending may be sound nice in the abstract. But the truth is it's really hard for organizations to do, especially during periods where the markets are suffering through some sort of turmoil. Yeah, fair enough. 
So the final, and I guess from from our perspective, an investing perspective, the uh, most powerful lever is the one around asset allocation. So how should fiduciaries think about that lever and, and the importance of it and what what's changeable around it? Yeah, so that's really where I spend most of my time interacting with foundations uh, and endowments uh, because uh, you know one of the main things that they have to establish first is the risk tolerance, what I like to refer to as a risk budget. And traditionally, we describe the risk budget in terms of what's the ratio of stocks to bonds. That's the key decision that they have to make up front. Um, and you know, part of the work that we do is to help them understand some of the trade-offs of moving from, say, a 60-40 portfolio stocks bonds to a 70-30 portfolio. You've been in a number of those meetings and sat on some of those boards yourself. How how difficult can it be to come to a consensus around something that is so important? And as you rightly point out, there's trade-offs. You can go for higher return and more growth, but that often comes with more volatility, which is you know, often enough not palatable for many of the people on the board. Yeah, that's right. And so I'll just maybe use an example. If you think about the decision of moving from a portfolio that has a risk budget of, say, 60% stocks and 40 bonds to one that has a risk budget of 70% stocks uh, and 30 bonds, well, we estimate that you could add you know, about four-tenths of 1% per year in return. And, and again, when we're trying to hit return targets that are in the 4 or 5%, that's a meaningful improvement in the expected return. But in doing so, you take on more volatility. In fact, you increase the risk of a drawdown. That's a 20% peak-to-trough loss from about 1 in 5 up to 3 in 10 and so that's a pretty dramatic increase in the amount of risk that the portfolio will have to live with. And so we encourage organizations to really think more holistically about, well, maybe you shouldn't just be adding stocks. You should think about adding some other things that may be able to, to help soften that blow. So what can those things be? Well, generally, they fall into a broad category of uh, diversifiers or alternatives. Uh, sometimes that may mean commodities or real assets or real estate. Uh, but more and more, what that really means is having exposure to uh, hedge funds or private equity or private credit. Uh, and so uh, this has been a big, big change and challenge for many committees because historically they may not have invested in those types of vehicles. And so they're wary and a little nervous about uh, investing in these types of vehicles. It's really important for them to work with somebody who has experience uh, and a track record of being able to deliver some of these alternative services and integrate them into an allocation in an appropriate way. I want to take each of these, but you mentioned real assets. Let's talk about the benefit that that can provide to an, a to an asset allocation that to this point has only included stocks and bonds, and then also alternatives or, or other illiquid investments like hedge funds and private equity and so forth. So maybe real assets first. Yeah. So for real assets, especially in an environment where we're anticipating that inflation will be higher than it has been over the last 10 or, or 20 years, real assets can play an important role in that they tend to have a much higher sensitivity or beta in market parlance to inflation. And so you can have things like real estate or commodities or you can focus on finding stocks that tend to be very sensitive to inflation and put them together into a basket of real assets that increases the ability of the portfolio to withstand bouts of higher inflation. And given that we are now, uh, you could argue, in the later stages of the economic cycle, 
And looking back at history, inflation has tended to occur when we are in, in late cycle. That would probably be a pretty good idea now. Absolutely. You can never call these things in terms of you know short-term uh, tactical calls. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do think that if you look out over the next five to 10 years, having some exposure to inflation-sensitive investments will be an important component of a properly diversified allocation. Let's talk about um, the other major category, alternatives, which is hedge funds, it's private equity, and so forth. Um, what is the benefit that that provides an asset allocation, again, that to this point has only been stocks and bonds? Well, hedge funds, of course, uh, sometimes can be a tough subject to bring up in a committee because people have uh, various experiences that they've had personally with hedge funds. Uh, some people just view the word hedge funds as somehow being risky. But traditionally, if you look back over the last 20 years, hedge funds have been able to deliver returns that are in between stocks and bonds. This is all you're trying to accomplish, returns in between stocks and bonds with much less volatility. I think that's an important point because most people assume or think that hedge funds are trying to hit the ball out of the park and get returns that are better than stocks. Some are. Right. But most are just trying to get balanced returns that are uh, safer than than a stock portfolio. That's right. In a diversified basket of hedge funds, what you're really trying to do is find a way to improve the risk-adjusted returns of the portfolio by um, having a part of the portfolio that's delivering returns somewhere in between stocks and bonds, but with much less volatility than stocks. And if you look back over the last 20 years, hedge funds have been able to do that. They've had about half the volatility of the stock market, but delivered much of the same returns. Now, that won't be true in every period. uh, But over the long term, we think they're an important component of an asset allocation. Just to to steal some of the conclusions that I know will come a little bit later, um, how's a, a, a board to think through the decision-making around which hedge fund to add to? Because as you and I both know, hedge funds are not a, a monolith. They are not all the same. They are very, very different. So, so it's a tough decision for any organization to make, particularly for folks who just are not in this industry. Yeah, that's right. And so committees that have historically tried to be the decision maker on which hedge funds to add, which hedge funds to remove, how to evaluate them, have generally, that's been a very inefficient way to design a fund of hedge funds exposure. It's really best for most committees to work with somebody who has the expertise, an investment advisor, who can go out and build a diversified portfolio of hedge funds for them, actively manage it, uh, and really be responsible for delivering the returns, explaining what's working, what's not, uh, instead of the committee doing really uh, what has been historically a really inefficient job of looking at hedge fund fact sheets and trying to figure out which hedge fund makes the right sense and how to put it all together. There are good investment advisors out there who do this, who have a track record of doing it successfully. And so committees really should be outsourcing that work to an advisor. And those those same advisors often enough ensure that that hedge fund is complementary to the stocks and bonds that are already in the portfolio as it is. That's right. That's part of their job is to look for concentrations of risks that could develop um, by adding the hedge funds to the portfolio and to really focus on making sure that the hedge funds are built to work well together so that they're not either concentrating risks or um, in some way offsetting the active decisions that each one of the managers are making. Now, within alternatives, we only talked about hedge funds to this point, but there are other types of alternative investments that committees should be considering 
alongside real assets or other diversifying uh, asset classes. So talk a little bit about those. So yeah, if you think about what have traditionally been called illiquid investments, things like private equity or private capital or venture capital or real estate. Farmland. Farmland, right? Private real estate. Um, Now, most organizations won't be in a position to own farmland or timber. But if you look at a recent study of large endowments, you will notice that the largest endowments, those with a billion dollars or more, have roughly 25%, a quarter of their portfolio, in what are traditionally illiquid alternatives. That's private equity, venture capital, and private real estate. Right? That does not include their diversified hedge fund exposure, which is also pretty significant. Now, when you look at organizations or endowments that are $25 million and below, they have 2% or less on average in those types of investments. Now, I'm not saying that they should all have 25% in illiquids or the equivalent, but there has to be some reason for the gap between 25% and 2%. Uh, and we don't think the, the reason is that it doesn't make sense from an allocation standpoint to have illiquids. Illiquids tend to provide some illiquidity premium. You are being paid in order to have the assets locked up in an investment for some period of time. So there has to be some other explanation for why these organizations have been so reluctant to move towards these traditionally illiquid asset classes. So what's the answer? Well, part of the answer, of course, is if you're a smaller endowment, you don't have as much money to put to work and you may not qualify, you may not meet the minimums Mm -hmm. for some of the investment strategies that are being used or deployed by the larger endowments. But I don't think that explains all of it because in the last five or 10 years, there have been plenty of innovation in the illiquid investment space. And so endowments below 25 million have an opportunity to invest in many of the same types of strategies as the larger endowments. I think another part of the explanation is that, uh, number one, uh, these committees tend to shy away from complexity. And so maybe that has been one of the reasons that they have decided to avoid illiquids as part of their allocation. I think the other reason is that they're concerned about a liquidity squeeze. They're concerned that at some point they're going to look up two or three years from now and not have the money they need or the flexibility to do what they'd like to do. But we were just talking about you know spending plans. If organizations are on average spending 3 or 5% and they have less than 2%, in illiquids or 2 or 3%, then there's a huge disconnect there. Even if they put 15% in illiquids, they still have 85% of the portfolio that they can use in order to meet their liquidity needs until that money is returned to them in the form of returns over the next two, three, or even five years. And, and so we think that uh, organizations are missing out on a significant opportunity to boost their returns. And in this environment, where we're expecting lower returns for stocks and lower return for bonds, being able to invest in something that's illiquid. I'll give you an example. Let's say that you were able to put together a portfolio of private credit, right? Going out loaning money to small middle market businesses. Well, you know, if you can loan money to, you know, small middle market businesses at LIBOR plus five or six, historically those businesses have repaid at a healthy clip. Defaults have historically have been low, lower than in the corporate bond market. Well, that might be an interesting place to deploy some of your illiquidity in your asset allocation. 
So these are all really important points that you're addressing um, to marry the challenges of the investing landscape that we're faced with today with diversification opportunities, but also balancing that against illiquidity and the needs for having access to your capital. Uh, but having an allocation very often at 10 to 15 to maybe 25% for most organizations provides enough liquidity to get the benefit that alternatives or illiquid investments provide. Yes, that's right. We're going to have to leave it there. Thanks very much, Travis. Today, we talked about the challenging environment and the levers fiduciaries and nonprofits can pull to meet their spending needs, with the most feasible being changing asset allocation. In our next podcast, Travis will be back to discuss how fiduciaries can navigate uncertain markets and measure their own success. For everybody out there listening, thanks very much. And you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Bernstein. Making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.